And uh, please turn back into your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 14 that Gwyneth read for us before, page 1154, 1 Corinthians 14. And hopefully inside your service sheets as well is uh, a sheet that has on one side songs during communion and on the other side uh, an outline of where we're heading. And I have good news for you already. And that is it. You'll see on the outline it says that we're looking at verses 1 to 33. We're only going to get up to verse 25, which means that the final point on the notes you can scratch off already. So already the sermon has got shorter before we've even begun. And we'll look at that, that part of the passage next week. So 1 Corinthians 14, page 1154. And we're continuing our journey through 1 Corinthians and we're in the middle of a section of the letter that began back in chapter 12, verse 1. And if you've got 1 Corinthians open now, it's worth uh, flicking back there. 1 Corinthians 12, 1, a section that is all about spiritual gifts or more literally spiritual things, spiritual people. It's a topic that is dear to the Corinthians' heart because they take great pride in just how spiritual they are. And it's a section where uh, Paul is responding to, I think, an implicit question uh, that the Corinthians are asking. uh, What marks a spiritual person? What are the authentic, definitive signs that somebody is truly spiritual? Uh, Somebody that the Spirit of God is powerfully at work in? What's the signs of a person like that or even a whole church that is spiritual? And you might remember as we were looking at chapter 12 in 12 verse 3, Paul gave us his definitive answer of the work of the Spirit in a person's life. We saw there in 12 verse 3 that the single-minded ambition of the Spirit is to make much of Jesus. He is at work in a person, in the world, in the church, to deepen and widen the knowledge that Jesus is Lord, Lord of all. And so the authentic mark of a spiritual person is one who can confess, Jesus is my king. But that's an individual person. What would a spiritual church look like? What would a church populated with people who have that confession look like? I suspect from these chapters that we've been looking at, the Corinthians' answer to that question is, well, they would be uh, those who uh, speak in tongues. That for them was a a claim to fame. That for them was a clear, decisive sign that uh, they were a spiritual church. If uh, someone was to ask them what what made them spiritual, this would be one of the things they pointed to. They're confident that their speaking in tongues was a clear sign of just how much the Spirit of God was at work in their midst. But all the way through these chapters, Paul has been countering such a view, such a definitive mark. Ask Paul what uh, him were the signs of a spiritual church and he'd say this from what we've seen in 12 and 13. A spiritual church is one populated by people who are walking in the way of love. A spiritual church is filled with people who are increasingly driven to use their spiritual gifts to build others up in the knowledge that Jesus is Lord. A spiritual church is filled with people who are wholeheartedly persevering in self-sacrificial, other-person-centred love. A spiritual church is filled with people who are towards others as Jesus has been towards them. And what a sight a church like that would be. And what a spectacular sight to look in on a gathering that is filled with people who are utterly committed to the good of others. It is God's ultimate apologetic to a self-absorbed world, a people committed to the good of others. Can you imagine it? As you look in on this gathering, imagine if you could see a little thought bubble above every single person gathered here this morning. And this is what we'd hear, each person asking one question. 
as they walked along Fullwood Road to, to church this morning or made their way to their small group this week, uh, above their heads would be a thought bubble with one question in it. Do you see the question? It's uh, buried in the middle of verse 6. The key question really in this chapter, I think. The question in the thought bubble would be this. What good will I be to you? As I walk uh, to church of a Sunday morning or to my small group, the question I'm asking is, what good will I be to you this day? How can I have it be that when we gather, that as we leave having gathered together, that you have profited from us being together? What good will I be to you this day? And the people who ask this question are moved by the Spirit to know that the greatest good we can be towards others is to be towards them in such a way that our time together leaves them with an even deeper realisation that Jesus is their Lord. To have them delighting more in him than they did before we met. To have whatever they do be done for his glory as we saw at the end of chapter 10. So that's the question. What good will I be to you? That's a question that a spiritual church asks as they gather. And in chapter 14, Paul is going to flesh out the answer for us of what that would look like. And he's going to do that in a remarkably helpful way. He's going to take two gifts that the Spirit gives his church, two gifts, and he's going to show us what benefit, what good they produce when the church gathers. The two gifts he chooses, uh, firstly, is tongues, which is the gift that the Corinthians are eager for as they gather. And then he's also going to speak of prophecy, the gift he wants them to be eager for when they gather together. And so in the opening verses, verses 1 to 5, he's going to outline these two gifts for us, tongues and prophecy. And if you look at verse 1 of chapter 14, already as he calls them again to the way of love, as he did in chapter 13, he makes clear even now the superiority of prophecy over tongues in the gathering. He says if you're going to bring a gift, they're both good gifts, but if you're going to bring a gift to the gathering with a a view to being of benefit to others, I'd rather you bring prophecy every time. In verses 2 to 5, he, if you like, gives us a composite picture of the two gifts. It's not a neat little definition that you can take away. He shows us what these gifts produce, the effects of these gifts on a gathering. These gifts are what they do. And so he starts with tongues. In verse 2, as we piece together what this gift does in the gathering, we're told it is a gift of speech that is unintelligible to others a language of some sort that is unknown to others in the church. It is known to the speaker and known to God, but not to those around. Verse 2, we're told it is a gift where I speak to God and not to others. That's the purpose of the gift. It's, if you like, a prayer gift. And the purpose of the gift, you see in verse 4, is to build the speaker up, not others. And so, yes, it's a very good gift, but in the gathering, this is how the gift works. It is unintelligible words spoken to God for my edification. That's the gift of tongues. And then also in these opening verses we have the gift of prophecy. And there's a remarkable contrast, isn't there? The gift of prophecy, verse 3, is the gift of intelligible words, words that are understood by others. In fact, they are spoken primarily to others. They are words, verse 4, to build others up. And we're told in verse 3 that this building, this edification, that the gift of prophecy, the words of prophecy produce, it takes three forms. Have a look at verse 3. What a triumvirate of purpose prophecy has. Have a look. The gift of speech designed to do three things. Strengthen, encourage and comfort. 
What a remarkable gift to bring into the gathering as you meet with others on a Sunday or in your small group, a gift that will strengthen, encourage and comfort them. A word that you bring to the gathering that strengthens others, leaving them more sure in their faith and their walk with Jesus than they were before. A word of encouragement. A word, uh, literally, uh, that makes the heart of another brave for Christ. That causes them to live courageously for him in their context. What a gift to bring to another person. A word that makes them brave. And it's also a word of comfort. A word that meets the person where they're at with the gospel. A word that meets the downhearted or the grieving or the frustrated or the hopeless or the lonely or the exhausted. A word for the unwell, for the suffering. And not some sort of glib greeting card wisdom. No, it is the word that speaks the mighty grace of the Lord Jesus. What a gift to bring to another. Have you ever experienced that? A word of comfort from a brother or sister. That is the word of prophecy. And let me say as an aside, as we look at uh, this gift of prophecy, it's worth noting just how clear Paul is in these verses as to the purpose of prophecy. I suspect there is much uh, muddle-headed thinking in the Christian community about what prophecy is and its purpose. There is, uh, for some, uh, the idea that prophecy is ultimately about predicting the future. And for others, uh, prophecy becomes uh, about speculative warnings and guesses as to the sins in your life or the life of your family. That's been my experience in the past. But that's the stuff of tarot card readers and astrologers, not the gift of prophecy. You can be sure of this. If someone comes to you with a prophecy that leaves you uncertain in your faith or fearful, they speak not from the spirit of our God. For the spirit of prophecy involves words about Jesus for your strengthening, encouragement and comfort. So there it is, the gift of prophecy and of tongues. Now I imagine that there may be some uh, who have still many questions about the nature of these two gifts. And we could spend the rest of this morning going around the New Testament and studying prophecy and tongues to try to sort of tease it all out. But I think if we did, we'd miss the point of what Paul is doing for us in this chapter. He is trying to say clearly to us, as we'll see as we go on, that I only benefit others in the gathering with my speech if they can understand what I am saying and if what I am saying is about Jesus. And so having established the primacy of prophecy in the gathering, Paul now shows us what that actually looks like in the case of when we gather with believers. Ultimately he says this, I am to benefit them. If I am to benefit them, they've got to understand what I'm saying. He makes the point in a number of ways. Firstly, in verse 7, he says, the problem with uninterpreted speech, which tongues are, is that others don't get the meaning at all. Verse 7, he says, it's a bit like the music group got up to play our next song and they hit the first note of the song and then they just kept hitting that note again. E, 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 E. And somehow we've got to guess what song it is. Now for some of us, the tone deaf amongst us, that might be a a great moment and we'll be able to just hit that note for the rest of the song. But it's not the point of music, is it? Verse 7, even in the case of lifeless things that make sounds such as the flute or the harp, how will anyone know what the tune is being played unless there is a distinction in the notes? Our speech should be meaningful. If you are following the way of love, the words we speak are not meant to be opaque to others. If our words aren't intelligible, they're not spiritual. 
And secondly, not only is it to be meaningful, it's to be purposeful. Verse 8. You see, the problem with uninterpreted speech is that others don't understand what the purpose is. You have here the trumpet that's meant to call people to battle. If people don't know what that call is, then they won't respond rightly. God's word to us on the lips of another Christian should be filled with purpose. For God speaks only purposeful words. Words that call us to battle sometimes. Words that protect us, warn us, rebuke us, correct us. Words with an obvious response. That's what our words to one another should do. They should be clear and purposeful. And the reason is, verse 9, unless you speak intelligible words with your tongue, how will anyone know what you're saying? You will just be speaking into the air. Now I think at this point it's worth saying that there are implications in this wider than just the problem of the gift of tongues in the gathering. It is possible, surely, is it not, to obscure, be obscure in meaning and purpose even when speaking in English. There's great danger for the preacher in that, isn't it? You may leave this sermon this morning saying, I have no idea what that guy was talking about. And if that's where I leave you, then I am, verse 9, speaking into the air. That's a danger, isn't it, for, for people who are members of a small group of being those who speak words that are so polysyllabic that they are no longer perspicacious. <laughs> Talk plainly, God says. His gospel is simple. Don't overcomplicate things. There is a danger of being so full of Christian jargon and theological code words that we leave those around as clueless as to what we're talking about. And rather than us asking the question, what good am I going to be to you? They're left asking the question, how good is that person? The exact opposite of what we're aiming for. Unintelligible words are useless in the gathering and more than that, we're told in verses 10 and 11, they can do great damage You see there, verse 10 and 11, if I am gathered with another Christian and he speaks in tongues that are not interpreted, we become foreigners to one another rather than family. What a horrible thing to do to a brother or sister in Christ. Rather than express your family relationship, you make them a foreigner. A year or so ago I went on a visit to Romania, to the churches that we're linked with out there and uh, most of the time I was there it was a, it was a wonderful time really encouraging uh, that you see the commonality, the bond we have in the gospel most of the time I was there I was with a translator and so what I was saying was communicated clearly to them and, and vice versa but then there was a couple of moments especially late at night when I went back to the home that I was staying where the translator had left and there the two of us were the, the pastor of the church and me on another couch staring blankly at each other And I did the typical Australian tourist thing of trying to talk loudly and slowly, hoping somehow that will get through. It's at that moment that that I just wanted to go home, to be honest. I felt like a foreigner. Speech in the church should never leave another person feeling like they don't belong, feeling like they're outside of what's being said, wanting to go home because this is their family and this is their home. And verse 16, he says it again in another way. If someone comes into the gathering and hears someone speaking in tongues, they become an outsider. They have no capacity to say amen to that other person's prayer. No capacity for fellowship. And what a cruel thing to do to another Christian. Leave them feeling like an outsider. And I have to admit, I haven't actually experienced personally the gift of tongues as in speaking in tongues. But I have experienced it being spoken to me a number of times. In fact, a couple of times on the door just here after a service, 
having someone lean into me and speak in tongues, tongues that were completely meaningless to me. Now I imagine the person felt that they were doing, they were of benefit to me, but the truth is verse 10 and verse 16 say exact opposite. We were strangers to each other. Verse 17, Paul says, you can excel in the gift of tongues in the gathering, but be of no benefit to your brother. He becomes a foreigner and an outsider, the exact opposite of God's goal for speech gifts in the gathering. Tongues must be interpreted and verse 14 and 15, they must be used with both mind and spirit. You see, what the Corinthians did uh, with their gift is they separated spirit and mind. Uh, the mind was boring, dull, sensible stuff. But when the spirit of God was at work, you were swept away. It's a view of spiritual gifts that I suspect still remains today. When the spirit is moving, we're swept away and sometimes it is mindless. But the authentic work of the spirit of God is a work of both mind and spirit. A work of deep intellect and of deep emotion. The way God reaches our spirit, the way he moves us to love him deeply, to delight in him, is to engage our mind with the news that Jesus is Lord. And so if we are to benefit others, we are to speak words that make sense, that will move our hearts, words that will encourage and comfort. Simple words do that. Paul knows the power of intelligible words, so much so that he says, I would rather speak five of them and then be quiet than speak 10,000 words in a tongue. And so as I walk up the road to Christchurch forward on a Sunday or I make my way to my small group or I plan to meet with someone for coffee, I'm not looking to speak meaningless words, nothing words, but simple, sensible words that bring the gospel of Christ crucified into their life at that moment. And the final section we want to look at this morning in verses 21 onwards says that the, the mark of a spiritually mature church is not only a commitment to love the believer but also the unbeliever amongst us. As we turn to look at 21 to 25, let me ask you this. If you could choose any manifestation of the Spirit for an unbeliever to witness amongst us, anything at all that the Spirit might do amongst us that would convince them that God was amongst us, that he was really present, what would you choose? Something different perhaps, something remarkable, something that they couldn't see somewhere else. Something that says to them, friend, you have stumbled into something big here. How big is this? God is in the house. Well, for the Corinthians, again, it was this gift of tongues that did that. They assumed that the sight and the sound of a church filled with people swept away by the Spirit, uttering words known only to them and God, unintelligible words, that the unbeliever would stumble into this cacophony of confusion and say, yes, surely God is amongst you. But in verse 21, Paul hits them with reality. They won't come in and say, surely God is among you. They'll say, surely you are nuts. They'll leave knowing plenty about us, but nothing about Jesus. And that will grieve the Spirit of God because his ambition is to make much of Jesus Christ. There's a great irony here, isn't there? there a moment that seems so packed, so heavy with the Spirit's presence, a, a church filled with people speaking in tongues, but more likely, Paul says, the Spirit has already packed his bags and left the house. Paul makes the point incredibly powerfully with a quote in verse 21 from Isaiah. It's from Isaiah 28 and it's uh, worth turning there just for a moment now. It's on page 711 of the church Bibles, Isaiah 28, page 711. 
And this is the quote he quotes in verse 21. He says, In the law it is written, Through men of strange tongues and through the lips of foreigners I will speak to this people, but even then they will not listen to me. Isaiah 28 is a, a passage where the, the people of God are mocking the, uh, the prophet Isaiah, his message that God has given him to give to the people. They're saying it's a childish message, babyish message. Isaiah simply walked up to the people of God and he's saying, trust God, rest in God. And it's a bit like the people are saying in Isaiah 28, you're going to have to do better than that, that's naive. Give us something that's not childish. And so they mock his message, we're told, in verse 10 of Isaiah 28. And it's interesting, the NIV, the Hebrew, they've had a, chance, a go at translating it, but it shouldn't be translated. You can see the little footnote at the bottom of your page there. It's meant to be meaningless gibberish. They're mocking him. Sav la sav, sav la sav, kav la kav, kav la kav. And so Isaiah responds in verse 11, Very well then. With foreign lips and strange tongues, God will speak to this people to whom he said, this is the resting place, let the weary rest. They wouldn't listen. So then the word of the Lord to them will become sav la sav, sav la sav, kav la kav, kav la kav. It's a withering passage for Paul to pick up at this moment, isn't it? For those who insisted upon speaking in tongues in the gathering was a sign of God's blessing, a sign that would lead to belief. In fact, the opposite is true. Speaking unintelligible tongues to the gathering was in Isaiah 28, as it was in the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11, a a way by which God was judging his people. It was a word for those who refused to believe God. To speak in tongues in the gathering in the hope that unbelievers would be impressed is a grave mistake, says Paul. When unintelligible tongues were uttered in their presence, the result would be a stronger unbelief. But, verse 24... Prophecy, on the other hand, was a sign not of judgment but blessing. Prophecy was a sign of God's purposes to reverse the curse of Babel, to speak words of strength and encouragement and comfort to his people about Jesus, our servant king. You see it there, verse 24, but if an unbeliever or someone who does not understand comes in while everybody is prophesying, he will be convinced by all that he is a sinner and will be judged by all, and the secrets of his heart will be laid bare, so that he will fall down and worship God, exclaiming, God is really among you. If an unbeliever comes into a gathering marked by prophecy, the potential outcome is radically different, isn't it? Salvation. Now we need to balance this with what we saw right at the start of this letter in chapter 1, where we were told those who are perishing, those who are unbelievers, consider the message of Christ crucified, and those who speak it to be foolish. But what Paul is saying here, if you consistently keep bringing this message of Christ crucified and messengers shaped by that gospel, if you keep bringing that same message in your gathering time and time again, God is able to use that to convince and convict and convert the outsider. What convinces a person that they're a sinner? It is the fact that Jesus is their Lord. What is it that can lay bare even the deepest secrets of a man's heart? It is the word of God that can divide bone and marrow. What is it that will cause a person to know that God is really among us? Only the word of his grace can do that. Only the word of our Emmanuel that leads a person to say wholeheartedly in a way that doesn't vanish in the air as they leave the gathering, God is with us. Well, let me conclude by saying I think in this passage God is calling us who eagerly desire spiritual gifts, which should be all of us, to redirect our desires 
to be those who desire to see the news of the Lord Jesus to be heard and understood by our fellow believers and unbelievers amongst us. Because that's the way of love. That's the way God is building his church. And so I want to ask you, does the building of this church matter to you? Does the building of the name of Jesus amongst us as believers and those around us matter to you more than anything else? Or have we been sucked in by the individualism of our time that we come here asking, what good will you be to me? That's not the way of love, nor is it the way of our king. He is building his church through people who are wholeheartedly committed to the good of others, who ask with joy, what good will I be to you this day? May God lay that ambition on our hearts. And so as we finish, let me leave you with three things to carry home with you. Firstly, remember verse 1. Follow, or more literally, hunt down, be ambitious for the way of love in this gathering. Look for that path in this place. Actively pursue the way of love when you walk through these doors on a Sunday. And when you go to your small group, when that's the last thing you feel like doing on a Wednesday night, when you're tired and dispirited from work or family life, or when you're just plain exhausted and you're looking for some me time and you couldn't care less what 1 Corinthians 14 has to say, You'd rather see Britain's Got Talent. Pursue the way of love. What good will I be to you this night? And remember verse 3, consider carefully the power of your speech when you gather with others. What a wonderful thing to be able to speak words to one another that can strengthen, give courage and bring comfort. Pray that before you come here of a Sunday morning. Pray that as you go to your small group and when you meet up with someone that we speak no nothing words or pseudo-spiritual words but words of strength and courage and comfort about our King. And finally, remember verse 25. What a wonderful Sunday morning we'll have had together if a visitor who has come amongst us who knows nothing of Jesus is convinced, yes, God is with us. What a moment that is. Remember these things and never again think that when you walk through these doors that you have come to something of little matter, something of which your part is of no import. But instead come here ready to walk in the way of love with words of profound purpose, words for your brothers and sisters and those who in God's perfect timing will join this family too. Well, let's pray together.